dear Father in heaven, it is a privilege to be able to call you our Father and our God, our friend. And Lord, as we open the word now, we submit our thoughts and feelings to you. We ask that you give us the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is the only effectual teacher of truth. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus, and we claim the merits of his holy and most precious blood. Amen. Amen. You have your Bibles. We're going to begin straight away in the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 16. First Samuel chapter 16, and we're beginning at verse number 1. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, and beginning at verse number 1, please notice what the Bible says. The Bible says, And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil and go. I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. So a simple question. And anytime you study the Bible, you always ask yourself obvious questions. So my question is, who is providing himself a king? Who's doing that? God. So God is providing himself a king from among the sons of Jesse. Jump down to verse number 6. So Jesse calls his sons, and in verse number 6 it says, And it came to pass when they were come, that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh where, my friends? On the heart. So God has denied Eliab or as the king of Israel, even though he's the oldest. And it's supposed to go to the oldest because the oldest is supposed to receive the birthright. Is that right? But there's something in the experience of Eliab that God says, I cannot use Eliab to be the king that I've set apart. Notice what else the Bible says now continuing at verse number 8. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither hath the Lord chosen this. Then Jesse made Shammah to pass by. And he said, neither hath the Lord chosen this. Again, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said unto Jesse, the Lord hath not chosen these. And Samuel said unto Jesse, are here all thy children? And he said, there remaineth yet the youngest. And behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come thither. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and with all of beautiful countenance and goodly to look to. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Now watch verse 13 very carefully. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Question. When Samuel pours the oil on David's head, what happens to David? All right, so the Holy Spirit comes and falls upon David when Samuel pours the oil on his head. How many people were there? How many people witnessed this anointing that David had? His brothers. It was a small group. Is that right? 
Keep that in mind. I want you now to go to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 2. 2 Samuel chapter 2. And we're going to begin reading at verse number 2. In 2 Samuel chapter 2. And beginning at verse 2. Notice what the Bible says. So David went thither and his two wives also. Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail Nabal's wife the Carmelite. And his men that were with him did David bring up every man with his household, and they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, that the men of Jebus-Gilead were they that buried Saul. So here's my question. Again, obvious observation. Who is anointing David at this point? Who's anointing him? The people of who? So the men of Judah are coming to David and they're saying, David, we would like you to be king over us. Please, your wisdom, your intellect, the spirit as upon you, we want you to rule over us. How many times now has David been anointed? How many times? Twice. The first time in a group of small, a small group there with his family. The second time now, men are recognizing the anointing of God upon David already. And they say, David, we want you to be our king. Second Samuel chapter five. Second Samuel chapter five. And we're looking now at verse number one. Second Samuel chapter five, beginning at verse number one. Please notice here what the Bible says. It says, then came all the tribes of Israel to David unto Hebron and spake, saying, behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, thou was he that led us out and brought us in Israel. And the Lord said to thee, thou shalt feed my people Israel, and thou shalt be a captain over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king to Hebron, and King David made a league with them in Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came. To the king in Hebron. And King David made a league and they anointed the king. Verse 4. David was 30 years old and he began to reign. And he reigned 40 years. In Hebron he reigned over Judah 7 years and 6 months. And in Jerusalem he reigned 30 and 3 years over all Israel and Judah. So here's my question. Obvious questions. How many times now has David been anointed? Once by who? Samuel. Samuel is a representation of who? God. Second by who? Judah. Judah. The men of Judah are recognizing the the anointing of God on on David and said, David, we want you to rule over us. We want you to be our leader. And then the third time he's anointed, who's he anointed by? And it's interesting when he's anointed by Israel, he the people say you are bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh. We want to make a league or a covenant with you. Now, I don't know if you've ever observed the Old Testament times. When they selected Saul to be king over them, do you know Saul stood head and shoulders over everybody? So normally they chose the fastest, the most intelligent, the tallest, the the most handsome, whatever. They chose that person to be their leader because they felt that under the leadership of this strong man, they would have dominance among the nations. You follow the idea? In fact, if you go back and look at history... 
The way we measure a foot today is by a little ruler, right? That's how we would measure a foot or a meter or whatever, whatnot. We would measure by a ruler. But back in the day, in order to have a measurement, you would measure a foot by the king's foot. Do you understand? Everything was by the ruler. Everything was based on who your leader was. So in their minds, the people of God or the people of Israel are putting themselves under in subjection to someone that they believe is greater than themselves. Now, mind you, you think I'm talking about David, but I'm not talking about David. But just this review, just for teaching sake, how many times was David anointed? Three times, once in a small group, then the group grew a little bit bigger, and then finally Israel makes a league with him. So both Judah and Israel are not under the leadership of one king. Keep that in mind. Now I want you to go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I want us to begin reading at verse number 10. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning at verse 10, please notice what the Bible says. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. You know, I like that verse. And let me just pause for a second. Commercial. So for six years now, we at our Tekoa missions have been looking for a place. Six years. And in the seventh year, amen, amen. the Lord blessed us with our own home. Amen. So we don't have to move anymore. But anyway, that's not a story. It goes on to say, Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them anymore as before time. And as since the time that I have commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and they cause thee to rest from thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee a house. Pay attention. And when the days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed. After thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. How long? So there's someone that's going to be born from the lineage of David who will build this house, and this house will last forever. Keep it in mind. Now, I want you to go with me just a tad bit further now to the book of Revelation. Just a real quick quiz. How many times was David anointed? Three. Three times. How long is David's kingdom supposed to last? Forty? Forever. All right. Praise God. So David's kingdom was supposed to last forever. We're in Revelation. And we're in Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. We'll begin reading at verse number 7. Pay close attention. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, the Bible says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of, who? David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. So there's a key of David, and this key opens a door that no one can shut, and shuts a door that no one can open. Now, just a logical question before I go any further. When you guys go to your homes and you have a key, some of you might have buttons now and you just push a button and you walk in your house, but normal people like myself, (laughs) we have keys. And normally, if you go to your house to open a door, you take that key in your hand. Is that right? 
You put that key into the lock, turn the lock, and then boom, the door unhinges, and it, you push the lever and it opens, right? Everybody follows that? Okay, go to Isaiah. Remember now, the key is a key to a door, and the door is open. Go to Isaiah, the 22nd chapter. Isaiah, the 22nd chapter. Isaiah 22, and we're going to begin reading at verse 21. Isaiah 22, beginning at verse 21. Notice what the Bible says. It says, I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle. And I will commit the government into his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And the key... Pay attention. And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his what? What's in his hand in verse 21? Look at verse 21. What's in his hand? The government. So the government is in his hand and the key is on his shoulder. So he shall open and none shall shut and he shall shut and none shall what? Pay attention. This is like a little riddle. The, the Bible has a little, a little riddle we're doing right now. So there's a key. We saw in Revelation, natural assumption is that the key would be in the hand, yes? And that you would open the door. But now we see that the key is on the shoulder and the government's in the... Isaiah, chapter 9. We're looking now at verse number 6. Isaiah, chapter 9. And we're looking at verse number 6. The Bible says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given... And the government shall be upon his what? Wait, what it was on his shoulder before? Huh, curious. And his name should be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. And upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts has spoken this. So here my mind says, whoa, wait a second. So in Revelation, I assumed that the key was in the hand. The key was to unlock a door. But then when I went to Isaiah 22, it says that the government was in his hand and the key was on his shoulder. And then I read that the government is on his shoulder. So then I say to myself, key... Government. The keys are key to a government. You ever heard of keys to the city? You ever heard that phraseology before? So the key that is received, that Jesus himself received, that God receives, is a key to a kingdom. And these keys to the kingdom is a kingdom that is supposed to last how long? So my mind says, when is this supposed to transpire? Like I've seen something like this before. Go to Daniel now. Go to Daniel. We're in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, and we're beginning now reading at verse number 9. Daniel chapter 7, and begin reading now at verse number 9. Notice what the Bible says. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fire stream issued and came forth from before him, Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were what? Tell me, what year is this? I got two loud, strong ones. I got a couple of uh, small, 1844, 
So I'm going to try again because I know I'm amongst family here. What year is this transpiring? The judgment is set and the books are open. What year? 1844. So we have this in mind that 1844, the judgment is set and the books are open. Now look at verse number 13. It says, I saw in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the ancient of days. So the the son of man is who? Who's the son of man? So Jesus is going before who? The father. So I saw the son of man go before the father. And came to the ancient of days, and they brought him there before him. Verse 14. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is a what? I wonder if this everlasting dominion is the same everlasting dominion that was mentioned in regards to David's throne. Do you think it's the same? It's the exact same throne. But now we have a time frame for when it's to transpire. So I want you to take the ideas that we just developed, all that nice information. I want you to take it. I want you to put it on a shelf. We're coming back to it. Now it's going to look like I'm talking about a completely different subject, but I'm talking about the same subject. I want you now to go to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 11. Deuteronomy chapter 11. Now, just for a review, make sure I said everything. Here we have three anointings. David is anointed three times. In order for the people to benefit from David's kingship, they have to recognize David's abilities and his power and his, and his prowess. So they have to recognize that. David's kingdom is to last forever. And we see that David's kingdom, I like that word bequeathed, you know, it's like the knights, you know. But anyway, is given. If you don't know what bequeathed is, it's given to Christ. So that kingdom is given to Christ. So that's the main points I want you to lock in your minds right now. You're in Deuteronomy chapter 11. Deuteronomy chapter 11 is going to look like we're talking about something else, but we're not. Verse 11, the Bible says, The land where you go to possess it is a land of hills and valleys, and drink of water of the rain of heaven, a land which the Lord thy God careth for. The eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it from the beginning of the year, even unto the end of the year. Now watch carefully. And it shall come to pass if ye shall, what's the word say? Hearken how? Hearken diligently unto my commandments, which I command you this day, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Then that I will give you the rain of your land in his due season, the first rain and the latter rain, that thou mayest gather in thy corn and thy wine and thine oil. And I will send grass in thy fields for thy cattle, that thou mayest eat and be full. Now watch. So there is a condition to the rain. Please tell me, what is the condition to the rain? Yes, it's obedience, but there's like this special word. It says hearken diligently. That means pay attention to the details. I tell this illustration all the time. One day, true story. I was in the kitchen washing the dishes, and I was done washing dishes. I have thoroughly done my task. At least I thought so. And my father came into the kitchen after me, and he went into the the drawer where the silverware was, and he pulled out a fork. I don't know if you have parents like mine, but my dad was quite particular. When he pulled out the fork, there just so happened to be some food left in the uh, crevice of the fork. So immediately he called me back into the kitchen. And for a half an hour, my dad lectured me on how my life was going to be. 
based on this fork. <laughs> Just this fork. I mean, so then after that half an hour of lecture, if that was not good enough for my father, my dad said, Andre, I want you to take every dish out of the cupboard. I want you to take every piece of silverware out of the drawer. I want you to wash it all over again. Now, how do you think I felt? I felt pretty, but I felt pretty upset at my dad, pretty mad. But guess what I did when I washed those dishes? I hearkened diligently. <laughs> do you understand the idea? I hearkened diligently. I made sure when I washed those dishes, I shined them, put them up to the light. Make sure those glasses had no water streaks in them. Put those forks. I'm, I was diligent. I was not going to wash dishes ever again like that again. I am probably the best dishwasher in the country. <laughs> Just because of that. But I think you understand the idea. To hearken diligent means to pay attention. I'm not superficially going over the information. I'm making sure that I follow the instruction as God has said to do. And if I do this, the rain is promised. But if I don't do this, I should not expect rain. Well, you think I'm talking about water right now, don't you? You think I'm talking about water? Pay attention. Look at verse number 16. Verse 16 says, take heed to yourselves. That your heart be not deceived, and ye turn and side and serve the gods and worship them. Verse 17. And then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you, and he shut up the heaven, and there be no rain. And that the land yield not her fruit, unless she perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord giveth you. So the idea is very simple, that if you obey God's word and pay attention to the details, he promises to give rain that will allow for the harvest to be gathered. But if you don't pay attention to the details, do not expect rain. It will be a dry season. You guys out here should know about dry seasons, right? It will be a dry season, but please don't think I'm talking about rain. I want you to go to Hosea. Hosea, the sixth chapter. Hosea, the sixth chapter. And we're looking at verse number three. Hosea, the sixth chapter, and we're looking at verse number three. Notice what the Bible says in Hosea 6 and verse 3. When you have it, just say amen. The Bible says, Then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord... His going forth is prepared as the morning, and he, the Lord, shall come unto us as the, what does it say? So the Lord will come unto us as the rain, as the latter and former rain unto the earth. So in this passage of scripture, we've just taken a literal, physical event, and God has now equated himself with the rain. So the same conditions that were for the physical rain are now equivalent for the spiritual rain. Are you following me? The same conditions. Hearkening diligently into the commandments. And God himself says, I will come unto you as the rain. Hosea chapter 10, verse 12. Hosea chapter 10 and verse 12. The Bible says, sow unto yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he come. Notice again now it's in a personal pronoun. Until he come 
and rain what upon you? So now the rain has been equivalent to God coming and then God pouring out rain, pouring out rain of righteousness. If it does not rain, things will grow. Is that right, everybody? No, but we just put in these nice apple trees. We didn't put them in, but they were there on our property, these nice apple trees. And uh, they said this year, at least in, in, in the Northeast, the, one of the greatest harvests that had ever taken place in regards to apples on our property. I mean, we couldn't even gather all the apples. That's how, how many apples. We, you got to come see it, brother. That's how many apples we had. We could not even gather all the apples that were on the tree. We had to leave some there just hanging on the tree. But if it never rained, there could be no harvest. I really want us to hear what I'm saying. For too long, we've been here on planet Earth and we've been waiting for Jesus to come. Yes? I want you to understand it's directly connected with the lack of rain. Hear me carefully. It's directly connected with the lack of rain. And you're going to see before I'm done here, we have a direct impact on whether it rains or not. Stay with me. I want you now to go to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah. Chapter 10. Zechariah chapter 10. And we're looking now at verse number 1. Zechariah chapter 10. Beginning at verse number one, the Bible says, Ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. So is there a time for the latter rain? So the instruction is clear. You don't just pray for rain. You don't pray for the latter rain in the time of the early rain. You pay for the latter rain in the time of the latter rain. That's what it says. Ask ye the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain, and the Lord shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain to everyone grass in the field. So again, the instruction is simple, that if I'm going to pray for rain, whether spiritual or physical, I need to pray for the rain in the season of that rain. So my mind would say, well, how do I know it's time for the latter rain? You know, some of us pray for the latter rain. Like, Father, please give us the latter rain. And, I, and you have to say to yourself, well, if we're supposed to pray for the rain and it's time of the latter rain, how do I know what time it is? And I should be able to know biblically what time it is. Because then the people of God need to cooperate with the plan that God has in motion. Now, I want us to go a little bit further. Go to the book of Joel. Joel. Some people say Joel. <laughs> I like Joel. Joel chapter 2 and verse 23. Joel chapter 2 and verse 23. And we're laying a foundation right now. So I need you to think, think with me. We're just laying a foundation. In Joel chapter 2 and verse 23, the Bible says, Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he hath given you... The former rain moderately. And he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. Notice what it says there, former rain. So I have a study Bible. In my study Bible, and I'm just going to write it here just so you can follow along. In my study Bible, there's a side margin for the word former, former rain. 
And what my side margin says for former reign, it says, teacher of righteousness. And my word for moderately has a side margin, and in that side margin it says, according to righteousness. Okay? Now you can go home and you can look it up yourself in your own Bibles, but mine has it right there in the side, and it says, Teacher of righteousness according to righteousness. So what I'm going to do now, I'm going to read the text with that idea right there in the text. So watch carefully. Be glad, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he hath given you the teacher of righteousness according to righteousness. And he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. So this idea of rain has to do with righteousness. And it has to do with a teacher of righteousness. Stay with me. So now my mind says, okay, let's do a little simplification of this whole section. So we have rain comes based on a condition. Yes? Everybody agree? Okay. Rain comes based on a condition. Rain helps things to grow. Everybody agrees with that? All right. Uh, There is a time for the rain. Everybody agree with that? Yes. And then lastly here, the Holy Spirit. Now I'm going to show you this in a minute. The Holy Spirit is the teacher of righteousness according to righteousness. How do I know that? They go to John chapter 16. John, the 16th chapter. John, the 16th chapter. And look at verse number 7. I'm saying to you, the Holy Spirit is the teacher of righteousness. And I'm going to challenge you. Before this is over, brothers and sisters, I I pray that we leave here spirit-filled Christians. There's a difference. Okay? John chapter 16 and verse 7, it says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, what is he going to do? He will reprove the world of what? Of what? Sin. And of what? So the Holy Spirit now is a teacher of? Of righteousness. And of judgment, of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and ye see me what? No more. So in this idea then, Jesus himself is a teacher of righteousness. He's walking amongst us, he's talking amongst us, and he's going to go away so you can't see him. So because you can't see him, Jesus says, I will send someone who will teach you and guide you and walk you step by step through this whole process. The Holy Spirit is the teacher of righteousness according to righteousness. Watch this now, verse number 13. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you what? Things to come. come. Verse 14. He shall glorify who? Me. So wait. The Holy Spirit is a teacher of righteousness according to the righteous one. Jesus is the righteous one. Jesus is the embodiment of the word made flesh. He is righteousness. So the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he's going to teach you about the person of Jesus. He's going to highlight to you who this person is and how you should live a righteous and holy life. And you cannot do it without the Holy Spirit. Stay with me. Let's go a little further. So there are a total... Of three offices. Oh, before I go any further. How many times was David anointed? 
So now we're going to take both studies that we just did. We just did two short studies. We're going to merge the two short studies into one study right now. So David was anointed how many times? Now in the Bible, there are only three offices that are anointed. Three major offices that are anointed in Scripture. The first one is prophet. First Kings 19.16 highlights this idea that Elijah is anointed by God. Then we see something interesting in the life of Jesus. Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Go there very quickly. Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Notice what the Bible says. Luke chapter 3, 21 and 22. And here Jesus is anointed for his public ministry. The Bible says, now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened... And the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him and a voice from heaven, which said, thou art my beloved son in thee. I am what, my friends? So Jesus is anointed. Tell me when Jesus is anointed, is it a, is it a massive amount of people that are there or is it a small group of people? What do you see when you, he's at this baptism? Yeah, this is a small group. I mean, this is a group of people that are there. They're witnessing his baptism, and it's a small group. Then Jesus is being anointed for his public ministry. Stay with me. Jesus is being anointed for his public ministry. This is Jesus' first anointing. Stay with me. This is Jesus' first anointing. The second position that is anointed in Scripture is the position of high priest, of high priest. In fact, we're going to look at Psalms 133 in a moment, but I want you to see in Acts chapter 2 and beginning at verse number 1. Go there very quickly. Actually, before we go to Acts chapter 2, I want you to go to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, and I want to see if you're being good students, because I know we're used to preaching, but I want to, I want to make sure that you're being students. So you're going to look at John 14, and we're looking at verse 15. And in your mind, I want you to go to Deuteronomy chapter 11, and I want you to compare. So in John 14 and verse 15, the Bible says, if you love me, do what, my friends? Okay, so based on Deuteronomy chapter 11, you must hearken diligently unto the what? And if you do, what's supposed to happen? Thank you. So now in John 14, 15, we should see what after you keep the commandments? Rain. Let's see if we see rain. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another what? Is that rain, my friends? Yes, that's rain. That's the Holy Spirit. So keep the commandments, and I'm going to send the comforter. Watch. That he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and watch this, watch this tense, and shall be in you. Tell me, shall be, is that past, present, or future? So in that moment in time, the disciples did not have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of them. The disciples had the Holy Spirit around them, just like many of us have the Holy Spirit around us. The sweet influence of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit speaking to our minds. There's a difference between the Holy Spirit being around you and the Holy Spirit being in you. There's a difference. So Jesus is saying, 
The Holy Spirit is with you and shall be future tense in you. Question, based on the verses, when is this supposed to take place? Watch this. I will not leave you comfortless, verse 18. I will come to you. Now, didn't we read something like that in Hosea chapter 6, verse 3, where it says, I will come to you as the rain? Here, he says, I will come to you. Verse 19, yet a little while in the world seeth me no more, but ye see me because I live, ye shall live also at that day. What day? The day when I and the Father are one. At that day, ye shall know that I am in my Father, ye in me, and I in you. What day is this? This is the day when the Spirit is going to be poured out and the Spirit is going to be in you. At that day, when you know the Spirit is in you, that's when you know that me and the Father are one, and you are in me, and I am in you, and this is all one big happy family. And at that day, you're going to know that something has transpired in heaven. Stay with me. At that day, you're going to know it. Okay, what that day being the day when the spirit is poured out. Go with me now to Acts chapter 2. Actually, Acts chapter 1. Again, here the Bible highlights, and you can read this also in Luke, I believe, chapter 24, verses 41 to 44. We're just going to read Acts chapter 2 where the promise is reiterated. The Bible says in verse 4, And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem. But what are they supposed to do? Wait. Wait. But wait for the promise of the Father, which he saith of he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, not many days hence. Verse 7. And he said unto them, it is not for you to know the times and seasons which the Father have put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and into the uttermost parts of the earth. So keep it in mind. Were the disciples supposed to leave Jerusalem before the Spirit came upon them? Okay, think with me for a second. We are, in a way, antitypical Jerusalem. We are antitypical Israel. Would it make sense for us to attempt to go evangelize the world and teach the gospel to the world if we don't have the Spirit before we go? That wouldn't make sense, right? I think the instruction is practical, very practical, that don't leave until you know you have the Spirit. I wonder, when you wake up in the morning, you're about to go about your day, do you know you have the Spirit before you leave? Before you engage people, start talking to your husband, your wife. I mean, it's not safe to leave your room without knowing you're connected. Are you hearing what I'm saying? It's as real as it comes because at the end of the day, you're going to be buffeted and tried. Temptations are going to come your way. You're going to have opportunities. And I've thought about this many times. You know, the Lord talks to me and he's very patient with me. There are days when I have gotten up and, you know, devotion, not so much so, been about my day, very busy, very busy. And then, boom, blindsided by some crazy, like, who thinks of these things to happen in my life? And it just hits me sideways. And the problem is, because I didn't anchor myself in the morning, 
Because I didn't anchor myself in the early parts of the day, like bewildered, get depressed, and I don't know what I'm going to do, and I want to retire from ministry because it's so hard. Just calm down, Andre. Go back to the very source of the issue. You did not spend time in communion. You didn't anchor your soul. Anchor your soul. When you anchor your soul, people are like, man, Andre, you're Superman. I am not Superman. I have a super God. When you anchor your soul, no matter what life throws at you, no matter what the devil sends your way, the devil has no power over you. He is a defeated foe. He is a, like Pilgrim's Progress, he is a toothless lion. But anchor yourself. Stay in Jerusalem until you receive the promise. Watch Acts chapter 2. Actually, before we go to Acts chapter 2, I want you to go to Psalms 133. Then we'll go to Acts chapter 2. Look at Psalms 133. I thought this was fascinating. I don't even know how I found this verse when I was putting together the study, but it's a very fascinating and very deep verse. Notice what the Bible says. Psalms 133, the Bible says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren, or brethren, to dwell together in what, my friends? Unity. Unity. Watch this. It is like, what is it like? The precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard that went down to the skirts of his garments. Pause. Who is Aaron? Aaron is a high priest. How much oil must there be for it to be coming off his beard and then falling off his clothes? There must be copious amounts. Is that right? There must be quite a bit of oil for it to come off his beard, drip off his beard, come off his clothes, and go off the skirts of his garments. Remember, Aaron is a, what is he? Aaron is being anointed. Is that right? Aaron is anointed as high priest. Pay attention. So as he's anointed, notice what else happens in verse number three. As the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. So I read that and I said, dew descended? Now, I'm not very smart, naturally. But dew, doesn't dew come up out of the ground? Am I right or wrong? So dew doesn't descend. What water descends? Rain. So this is rain falling down upon Zion. Zion? What is Zion? Zion is the church. Zion is the church. So watch the imagery, because this is all this is, is imagery. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like oil. Oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. It is like oil that came down the beard, even Aaron's beard, off the skirts of his garment, went off the skirts of his garment, started falling like rain, and rained upon the mountain of Zion, which is the church. So as the high priest is anointed above, the church below is anointed. Now you following me? Jesus is anointed as high priest. Go to Acts chapter 2 now. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Beginning at verse number 1. Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Notice what the Bible says. It says, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. 
And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as the fire, and it set upon each of them. And the Bible says, verse 4, and they were all, what's the word? Filled. Now that's interesting. They were filled here, but previously in John chapter 14 it says, and you will have the Holy Ghost in you. That will have the Holy Ghost is now present tense. Is that right? So now it's not no longer shall be in you. It is present tense. He is inside of them. Huh. Curious. Pay attention to this now. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now watch verse 29. Because I want to know, because I always ask my Adventist brothers and sisters, do you have the Holy Ghost living inside of you? Everybody goes silent on me. They're like, well, I, I'm not sure. I mean, does the Holy Ghost live inside of you? There's a lot of thinking. Does the Holy Ghost I'm not sure. Holy Ghost. You, ask, you ask Pentecostals, they're like, yeah, but I don't even know if they know. See, the Holy Spirit is supposed to have a dwelling place inside this body temple. So watch, verse 29. Did the disciples know? Notice what the Bible says, verse 29. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you. Watch this now. Let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, for he is both dead and buried, and his sepulchers with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. You see that? Watch this. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus have God raised up, whereof all ye are all witnesses. Watch this now. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now what? See and hear. Peter's fully aware that the Holy Ghost is upon him. He says, what you see right now is evidence of what is already transpiring in heaven. Peter, watch carefully. Peter was fully aware of the movements of Christ in heaven and his ministry below corresponded with that ministry above. So as Christ is anointed above as the high priest for the people of God, the church below receives power. The second anointing had a direct impact on the church. How many anointings did I say there were? So we have the prophet. And we have the priest. There must be one more category that has to be anointed. What do you think that category is? Now you have to think with me. I like that. Young development right there. You have to think with me. On the day of Pentecost, watch what happens. Just think, this is 8031. This, this is my makeshift chart. Don't, I'm not a designer. Okay? So Jesus ascends into the heaven above, enters into the holy place to begin his ministry above. As he is anointed to do his job, the rain comes down and 3,000 people are converted in a day. As he begins to minister above, the rain comes down and there's a harvest. Listen. I repeat myself just because repetition is the mother of all learning, they say. As he is anointed above as high priest, the rain comes down and there is a harvest. I'm going to read this to you. This is Steps to Christ. 
And I can't read it off the screen, so I'll tell you what it's found. Steps to Christ, and I can't even see it there. So, it's Steps to Christ. (laughs) I'm going to start here. And Pentecost brought them the presence of the Comforter, of whom Christ had said, He shall be in you. And he had further said, It is expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. Henceforth, watch this now, henceforth, through the, what does it say? Through the Spirit, Christ was to abide, how? Continually in the hearts of his children. Watch this. Their union with him was closer than when he was, what? Wait a second. Again, I just like to... Meditate on the obvious. So let's say right here, right now, imagine, and I'm not Jesus in any way, shape, or form. I would love to be like him. But imagine I was Jesus. And every day you had the opportunity to come and sit at my feet. And know that I was Jesus and I was going to lead you to eternal kingdom. You would be here. You would see me. You would flock just like the crowds would. You know, you would come because physically he's here. You're like, yes. I get to sit at the feet of Jesus. But then the quotation says something that your mind should wrap around very quickly. It says that when the spirit comes, he'll be closer to you than if Jesus was here in person. Now, is the Holy Spirit relegated to a location? The Holy Spirit can be anywhere and everywhere at the same time. Is that right? So in the morning when you arise and you are in communion with God, it's as if physically he's right there. Are you hearing what I'm saying to you? We're like, oh, I wish I was back in the day when they had the the cloud, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Oh, I would have never, (laughs) I would have never complained like the children of Israel. Oh, I wish I was there when Jesus was giving those stories. I would have sat at his feet and I would have listened to every single solitary word. And then this quotation says, well, he's more personally now with you than back in the day. You're like, well, uh, devotion? I got to get to class. Don't you know I have a test? I got to get to work. I, five minutes is all I can spend. I play five minutes. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Lord, I did my best. Got to go. If you knew that you could spend quality time with the creator of the universe, and you knew that he was personally going to give you personal counsel, would you push that aside? We say no, but we do. Yes. But maybe if it resonated deeply in our minds, he really does want to spend personal time with you, personal communion with you. I think that would change things. It does change things for me. Closer than if Jesus himself was there in the flesh. So then we have this last component. Now, I want you to follow me here. The third component is the anointing of a king. I want you to go with me to Daniel, the seventh chapter. I want you to use your biblical observation skills. Daniel, the seventh chapter. Watch carefully, carefully. Daniel, the seventh chapter, and we're going to begin reading at verse number 13. The Bible says, Oh, before I go there, you have your finger here at Daniel 7.13. Put your other finger in Revelation chapter 14. 
and verse 14. So you have your finger in two places. Okay? Watch carefully, my friends. So Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. The Bible says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him, what does it say? Dominion and what else? Glory and what else? So in this verse, the Son of Man comes on a cloud to receive a kingdom. Is everybody with me? All right. Hold your finger in Daniel. Go over to Revelation chapter 14. Look at verse number 14. You tell me if this verse looks familiar at all. The Bible says in Revelation 14 and verse 14, the Bible says, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one set like unto the Son of Man. Does that sound just like Daniel 7? Yes. Watch. Having his head a what? Oh. And in his hand what? Well, this is interesting. The imagery is changed just ever so slightly. A golden crown is different because in Daniel 7, he had no crown on. Is that right? In Daniel 7, he went in to receive a kingdom. But if he has a crown on in Revelation 14, that means he has already received the kingdom. Listen to what I'm saying. What does he have in his hand? What's a sickle for? Okay, so you guys are very smart people thus far. So if he has a sickle in his hand to collect the harvest, what must have happened before if he is now receiving a harvest? It had to have rained. Are you following me? So Jesus, listen. In 1844, I want you to pay close attention to what I'm going to say right now. In 1844, Jesus went into the sanctuary. He opened the door with this key. And he shut another door behind him. He goes into the most holy place to receive a kingdom. But the thing is, with every kingdom, you have to have subjects. Listen to me. In every kingdom, you have to have subjects. In the three anointings. Did not the people of Israel in the third anointing come to David and say, David, please be ruler over us. We want to make a league with you. You are now bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. Please be our leader. The king will only have subjects if the people come to him and ask him to be their king. Listen to me. The king can only have subjects if the people say, we would like you to be our king. But do you know there's a, there's a caveat with God? The caveat is very simple. Know you not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey. His servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. So you can't say, Lord, be our God, and still disobey him. Are you hearing what I'm saying? So what God is doing right now, listen to me. Remember, with the early rain, when the first rain began to fall, there was a people on earth that followed his instruction. He said, stay in Jerusalem until you receive the outpouring of the rain. They stayed in Jerusalem and they received the outpouring of the rain. And the rain came in direct connection with Christ being anointed as high priest. And the people below received the benefit of his kingship. In the latter rain, it is the same thing. 
He goes to receive a kingdom, but in order for him to receive a kingdom, there must be a people that understand what he is doing. And they must be subjects. Now listen, here we go. And I'm going to try to talk as slowly and non-emotionally as possible. I really want you to get what I'm going to say. Judgment is set, books are open, he's in the most holy place. Desire of Ages 671, paragraph 3. Pay attention, please. Of the Spirit, Jesus said, he shall glorify me. The Savior came to glorify the Father by the demonstration of his love. So the Spirit was to glorify Christ by revealing his grace to the world. The very image of God is to be reproduced in humanity. The honor of God, the honor of Christ is involved in the perfection of the character of his people. So I read that and I say, well, why is that? Okay, so back in the day, I still don't really know much about gardening, but I wanted to know about gardening. So what I did, because I didn't have anyone to teach me at the time, I got my YouTube videos. And in YouTube video, you type in square foot gardening, and then all these instructions come up. So I took my YouTube video, I went outside, play, dig. And that's what I did, play, dig. And I made my square foot gardens. I was so happy. It was one of the most wonderful experiences I had. It took me all day, literally, morning till night. It was good because when I started, then my family came to help me and my friends, and we, we did all this work. It was a beautiful day. And I think I worked till about until the sun went down, because we not only made the gardens, but we dug all the holes and put the seeds in. It was a thorough job. And then probably about 11 o'clock at night, it started to rain. I never was so happy for rain. It was like, thank you, Lord, for all this. I asked the Lord for a helper, someone to give me wisdom on how to plant. So God sent me a friend. He came, came to work at my school. And I was out there with the master gardener one day. And as I was out there with the master gardener, I said, Master Gardener, I said, I heard about these Monsanto seeds. Anybody know about Monsanto seeds? Uh, these, these Terminator seeds. So you, you plant them one time and they don't produce ever again. You know, that's it. And then you have these heirloom seeds where you can plant them and then they reproduce and then they, you know, bloom and blossom and then the seeds and all that stuff. So he was telling me the difference and he said these words and I'll never forget and I don't know which plant we were talking about, but I'll never forget these words. He said, Andre, he said, this is how this seed works. I think we're talking about broccoli. I'm not sure. But he was there and he's like, Andre, this will grow and blossom. He said, the seed will fall to the ground. But once it hits the ground, he said, it will harden. And he says, everything, listen now. He said, everything that is in the, the parent plant is now in the seed. Okay, I'll say it one more time. Everything, that's the parent stock plant, all the DNA, if you will, that's in the parent plant is now in the seed. And once the seed hardens, or another way of saying hardens, once the seed is sealed, then when the seed is planted, it will reproduce exactly like the parent plant. Anybody paying attention? So I said, huh. Interesting. Seed, hardens, duplication. Sand, plant. I, immediately when he said it, my brain just like, ding, ding, ding. He was like, what's wrong with you, Andre? I said, oh, the Holy Ghost, brother. <laughs> the seed. Who's the seed again? Christ is the seed. Listen. When Christ died, 
he sealed everything that we're supposed to be inside himself. Are you hearing what I'm saying? You see, the Christian life is not about creating, you're going to create a new person. No, the new person has already been sealed. The seed must now be planted. The reproduction or the the duplication of that seed is now going to create a harvest. No one's listening. Watch this. Go to Revelation chapter 12. Watch this. Watch, watch, watch. Revelation chapter 12. Look Look at verse number 15. Watch. And the serpent cast out of his mouth, verse 15, 12, 15. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon cast out of his mouth. Watch. And the dragon was wroth with the, with the what? With the woman. And went to make war with the remnant of her, of her what? Who's the seed? Christ. So the remnant of her seed is Christ. So Christ is the seed. The remnant is that which has been reproduced just like the seed. Listen, the devil ain't mad at nobody right now. Nobody really looks like him. Nobody really looks like Jesus in North America. We're comfortable. Listen, we are, like for real. Everything's cool here. The devil goes to make war against those that look like Jesus. He goes to make war because the reality is, if you look like Jesus, he loses. So he says, because this is his argument, this is the devil's argument. He says, nobody wants to serve you, God, because you are a dictator. No one wants to serve you because your blood on Calvary really doesn't mean what you say it means. Do you know what the blood on Calvary means? The blood on Calvary. What can wash away my sins? What? So blood washes away sin? You believe that? Blood on Calvary, washed away sin. So when Jesus died, he seals up everything that we're supposed to be, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the... So watch me. So here it is. Jesus goes into the most holy place to receive a kingdom. But in order for him to receive a kingdom, he must have subjects. These subjects must look like him. He has to start out with a small group before he can collect the harvest. No one's listening. Watch this, watch this. Go to Revelation chapter 14. Look at chapter, verse number 1. Watch this. Revelation 14, verse 1. The Bible says, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion, and with him a hundred and what? Having 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, as the voice of many waters, as the voice of a great thunder, and I heard a voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, what kind of song? I want you to know something. The last time the word new song was used is in Revelation chapter 5. And there are actually lyrics for that new song. But you see, there are no lyrics for this new song. Because it hasn't happened yet. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And they sang those words, a new song. Before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song 
But the hundred and forty and four thousand which were redeemed from the earth, these are they which are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed, pay attention, these were redeemed from among men, being made firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no God, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Pay attention. What is a firstfruit? Firstfruits. Uh, so just follow me, follow me. A first fruit. This is all the wheat. This is the harvest. This is all the harvest. Okay. This is a complete total harvest. What they would do is take a portion of this harvest and they would take it to the sanctuary and they would wave it. They call it a wave sheaf offering or first fruits offering. And they would wave that offering before God to say, father, listen, father, this is an example of what the harvest is going to be. No one's listening. The first fruits were an example of the harvest at large. So the first fruits are first presented before the Father before he can collect the rest of the harvest. Anybody listening? So watch. So Jesus goes into the sanctuary before his Father, and he says, Father... I'm here to collect my kingdom. The father says, do you have any subjects? What happened about first fruits, father? Listen, I have the first fruits, father. No problem, son. I will now give you and anoint you as king over this kingdom. When he anoints Jesus as king, the latter rain is poured out on him and his first fruits. Listen. When this happens, the first fruits receive power to gain a larger harvest, just like the disciples. Are you following the idea? On the, in the early reign, it was the same thing. Jesus goes before the Father. I have done everything you asked me to do. Son, your offering is perfect. Your sacrifice is pure. Yes. Do you have anything to present? Yes, I have the first fruits. Well, who are they? I brought them with me. You know, when Jesus rose from the dead, he took 24 with him. A minimum of 24. But he took some with him as first fruits from the dead. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Jesus took first fruits from the dead, presented them before the Father. The Father says, no problem, I'm going to let it ring. And then there's a harvest on that day. As a type of what will happen in the last days. As he goes in before the Father and says, Father, I am ready to receive my kingdom. The Father says, do you have any first fruits? The answer is no. Well, we have to wait. Is that in the Bible? Yeah, it is. James. Go to James. James. Look at James. Notice what the Bible says in the book of James. James chapter 5, beginning at verse number 7. Watch what the Bible says. Be, what's the word? Patient. Be patient, therefore, brethren. Unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman, what does he do? He's waiting. So when the father, he goes in before the father, Father, 
The judgment of the dead has already been going on, but now the judgment will soon pass from the dead to the... So Jesus needs first fruits of those that are alive, my friends. He needs a group of people that are alive, that when he goes in before the Father, he's already ready to collect those that are dead. He's already ready to collect those persons. But he needs a group of people that understand by experience what it means to cooperate with him. So when he moves into the most holy place and he says, I need first fruits, I need at least 144,000. I need this group of people who will show themselves, watch, loyal to me despite their rebellion in the world. So you know how God gets his first fruits? Do you know how he gets his first fruits? Watch this. I'm going to show you something that I have only taught like maybe, maybe five times in public. Look at Revelation chapter 13. And I want you to see it. And I want you to learn to look at the crisis differently than how you see it presently. In Revelation chapter 13, I want you to see something. We're going to begin reading at verse number 11. It says, I beheld another beast coming out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a, what did he speak as? And he exercised all the power of the first beast before him, and caused the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do, in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth, that they should make an image to the beast which had a wound by the sword, and did what? So in Revelation 13, this is what you have. You have the beast from the earth. The beast from the earth does wonders or miracles. The miracles gain the confidence of the people. And then the people say, let's make a what? So I found something interesting in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 13. Go to Deuteronomy, chapter 13. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, and we're going to begin reading it at verse 1. Watch what the Bible says. And it's interesting, when you really do a thorough study in Revelation 13, this beast right here is called the false prophet in Revelation chapter 16. But in Deuteronomy chapter 13, you'll see here the Bible says, If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and giveth thee a sign or a wonder... And the sign or the wonder come to pass, whereof he spake unto thee, saying, Let us go after other gods, which thou hast not known, and let us serve them. Thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet or of that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God does what to you? What's another word for proofs? Test. For the Lord your God proveth you or tested you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. I.e., this will be a test of loyalty. Stay with me. So here, Deuteronomy 13, you have the false prophet. The false prophet does signs and wonders. The signs and wonders are designed to gain the confidence of the people in order to get the people to make and go after other gods. According to Deuteronomy chapter 13, this would all be a test to prove whether or not you are loyal to God. Are you hearing what I'm saying? So in Revelation chapter 13, Revelation chapter 13 is a test of loyalty. In other words, in the heavenly sanctuary above, God has now transitioned from judging the dead. When this crisis comes, it's a judgment of those who will be loyal to God. Or who will be loyal to the devil? It's a test of whether or not those who will follow the covenant of God or follow the covenant of Satan. 
Are you following me, my friends? It is here at this test. It is here when this test comes upon mankind that God says they are safe to save or they are not safe to save. I'll save that. So let's back up. Jesus goes into the most holy place in heaven and he begins the work of cleansing, purifying, making a righteous people, a holy people. He has a hard time, though, because every time he gets somebody clean, they put dirt back on top of them. He goes and tries it again. Can I clean you up? Can I get you clean? Can I clean that out of your life? You're like, sure, Lord, this is great. And then for like two weeks, and then all of a sudden you're back in your dirt again. So God has a problem. He has a work that he's trying to do, but he can't close the door on it. So here am I. I'm an Adventist young man, and I'm observing the times. Anybody else observing the times? Is anybody else uncomfortable? I'm uncomfortable. Literally, in New Hampshire, my airport is really small. Like, literally, you can walk maybe 100 feet from the gate to the next gate, and you're on the plane. I mean, it's a tiny, tiny airport. I go to the airport... And there are police everywhere. Everybody's afraid. I look at the economy. You know, right now, we are not doing well. All the ostensible beauty of what looks like a recovering economy is all facade. Nothing's doing well. You're going to get a job, and then you're going to pay your student loans, and that's going to be your life. I'm sorry. If that's your focus, that's what's going to happen. So the economy's not doing well. The morals in society have definitely gone haywire. In the last eight years, what was something that you had to hide in the closet has now become something that if you say something against, you're a hater. I'm speaking about homosexuality. Homosexuality is sin, just like fornication is sin. It is a sin. And those who practice these things are not going to make it into the kingdom. Okay, but wait. I'm looking at society going sideways morally. I'm looking at the terrorist threat increasing. I'm looking at the economy going crazy. I'm looking at, you know, forgive me, I'm not trying to make a mockery of this, but black lives matter, white lives matter, purple lives matter, humanity matters. But, but what I'm seeing is an intentional division caused by the social engineers to create hatred amongst people. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Because what they have to do, they have to create chaos in order to establish their order. Then on top of that, we got an Adventist guy running for the presidency of the United States of America. When inspiration says clearly, this is not to be brought into the church. We have nothing to do with it. And if you want to see me afterwards and have a conversation, we can talk. But we're not going to have anything to do with it. But for the idea for him to be almost up there in the top echelons of the Republican Party makes my mind say, really? What's happening? It's like a twilight zone. (laughs) It's weird. Like, everything is weird right now. I, I don't know if you understand. I mean, I wake up and it's like, this is weird. But all this is transpiring. And the saints of God are trying to be cool with the world.
The saints of God want the music like the world. It doesn't make sense. We don't need to bring that into our church. We, we don't need it. But all I'm saying is we're in a stupor. It's like this, like this afternoon. Early. Actually, it was this morning. So I've had this strange jet lag. It's just been really tough getting regular sleep. But I, I slept. But in my morning sleep, like, I, you know, I woke up at like 3 in the morning, 4 in the morning this morning. And then I uh, stayed up to study. And then I went back to sleep. And then I knew I had to wake up. But in my dream... Like, you can see yourself in your dream. You ever had that? So I can see myself in my dream this morning, and I'm like, I have to get up. You know? <laughs> I'm fully conscious that I'm supposed to be up right now, but in my dream, I can't get up. That's how spiritually I feel sometimes. You ever felt like that? It feels like that. It feels like a dream. And if you're dreaming, that means you're what? Sleeping. So I look at the world, I see this craziness going on, and then I'm reminded, Jesus has entered into the most holy place to receive a kingdom. And if the world is coming to pieces like this, if the winds are being let loose like this, that means he's getting the people ready to be able to stand through the crisis. He will not allow the crisis until he has a people. And just because you're delaying preparing doesn't mean that God is delaying. It doesn't mean everybody in the whole world is delaying. So here again, I'm repeating myself. Jesus goes into the most holy place to receive a kingdom. He needs subjects. But before he collects his first harvest, his first fruits, he has to allow for the test. The test will then qualify whether or not he has loyal subjects. When he has these loyal subjects, he pours out the latter rain because he's anointed as king. When he's anointed as king and this group of people are anointed with the Holy Ghost, then the great harvest is gathered and he comes to take us home. As the world sets up the image to the beast, Jesus sets up the image of his son in his church. Listen. What we have right now is okay, but our church will not look like this much longer. It's not going to look like this much longer. You need to love who you see now because they may not be there in the end. Are you hearing what I'm saying? I'm speaking to you as family. I say and I challenge you, make your relationship real with God. Every day you have right now, every temptation you have, treat it as if this is preparation. We're not just going to wake up one morning and be like, the Sunday law's here. Yes, Samson. You're going to wake up in that crisis and you're going to try to use your supernatural strength and it will be gone from you. Because you played with the harlot too long. Now is the time, as he's in that most holy place, as he's preparing to be anointed as king, we must practice now being his subjects. Now is the time. Not some distant time in the future, now is the time. Every time we say yes, we strengthen our resolve for God. Every time you say no... And then yes, no then yes, no then yes. You put yourself on rocky ground. And when that test comes, there's no extra grace after that test. You understand what I'm saying? Like that test is final. It's the final exam for those who say they are seven-day Adventists. This is our test. And when you meet it, my friends, I want you to meet it in full confidence with God.
Can you imagine now, again, I'm just speaking on a, on a very earthly level. My wife and I are best friends. We love each other, you know, till death. But can you imagine if I fought with my wife every day and then went on a trip? I would be looking for someone else to talk to. You know what I'm saying? Like, it would be easy then for my wife to be thinking, is he out there talking to somebody else? Because what's happened? The relationship is not consistent. Are you hearing what I'm saying? But see, I left my home strong. Amen. Amen. I left my home in love with my wife. So I don't care what woman comes. Oh, that brother Wilder, you're so cute. No. <laughs> not going to happen. Because my loyalty is with this woman. We've made a covenant with each other. And you see, God is making a final covenant with his people. Last verse, I'm going to let you go. Because I know it's Saturday night, you know, Adventist. (laughs) (laughs) Hebrews. Chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, looking at verse number 10. The Bible says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. Watch what he says. I will put my laws into their minds and write them in their hearts. I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. That sounds like a love covenant to me. What do you say? God says, I'm going to write it in your heart. I'm responsible for making you a Christian. I'm responsible for taking your love of the world and destroying it and shattering it. And I'm responsible for putting in your heart a love for the Sabbath, a love for the truth, a love for purity, righteousness, and holiness. God says, I'm responsible. The pressure is on him. The question is, do you trust him to do what he says he's going to do? There's no weapon formed against God's people that's going to prosper. You see, I'm not afraid of the Sunday law. I'm not afraid of the final crisis. The only thing I'm afraid of is me. I'm afraid of me. I'm afraid of what I'm going to do. And the only way that I'm going to hide myself is to hide myself in Christ Jesus. He's the only safety. He is the only sanctuary. He is the only one that can keep us when we cannot keep ourselves. So where are your eyes fixed, my friends? Where are your eyes fixed? Fix them on the most lovely person. His name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you heard our prayer. Create the clean heart in us, Father, for we don't have it of ourselves. We see the reality, Lord, that you desire to pour out your spirit upon your people, but we are not ready. We ask, Father, that you show us more of your son. For in showing us more of your son, we see the reality of what we are. And what we are is messed up, Lord. And we come to you because you can fix us. 
you have the Holy Spirit. You have the, the early rain that you offer even presently today. I pray, Father, for the indwelling of Christ to be in each one that receives it this evening. I pray, Father, that you give them peace that passes all understanding. I pray that you give each one a love for your word that they've never had for it before. I pray, Father, that you give each one a hatred for the things of this world like they've never had it before, Lord. And, Father, where we have secret sin, where we have given Lucifer permission to be in our lives, we ask, Lord, that you help us to turn from the wicked one. There is no life there, Father. Please do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Please take our hearts for we cannot give them. They are your property. Keep them for we cannot keep them for thee. Save us from ourselves, our weak, unchristlike selves. And raise us into a pure and holy atmosphere where the rich currents of your love may flow through our souls. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. And we claim the merits of his holy and most precious blood. Amen.